Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week we're doing something a little different. Regular listeners will remember an episode from last year in which we gathered together the experiences of various workers across the healthcare system. They told us about the challenges they were facing during the January 2021 wave of COVID. While it might not always feel like it, January 2022 has been different, but that doesn't mean healthcare staff aren't under pressure. This week, we're going to hear from four people. A GP who's been on the front lines of the COVID response, a paramedic working amid huge staffing issues, a consultant in one of the country's busy emergency departments, and an intensive care consultant who has seen firsthand the worst of this pandemic. First, we're going to speak to Dr. Amy Morgan, a GP based in Drada. Now, GPs are often the first to feel the impact of an emerging COVID wave. So I started by asking her how Christmas 2021 compared to 2020 in terms of both COVID and non-COVID care. Far more non-COVID related stuff. We had, you know, all our chronic disease management um, appointments. Um, we had our um, cervical check appointments. We had people coming in for actual, you know, like checkups and stuff like that. And then obviously it was, you know, trying to balance that with the general kind of burden of kind of winter diseases. And, and you know, compared to the previous year, you know, we were seeing obviously more children that were were sick or mildly unwell with, you know, common cold type presentations. But, you know, it was, so it was hard trying to make sure that people, to remind people, I suppose, to see things through a filter of could this be COVID um, and be suspicious about their symptoms um, and, you know, be referred for testing. So it was very busy. I think there was a, you know, we, there was a lot of demands on us. Um, and generally, I think, you know, um, we've been playing catch up throughout in terms of trying to organize our, our workload over the period of the year in terms of to catch up with kind of um, care that maybe has come back to us from secondary care appointments being delayed or deferred uh, and then having to kind of obviously still work through the filter of COVID and make sure we were keeping our our staff and our practices safe and and open because at this stage you know you were encountering colleagues who were having to isolate because they had positive diagnosis of COVID and a little bit of an element of that we were kind of conscious that we wanted to keep everything open and keep everything running as seamlessly as possible so yeah it, it was very it was very busy and then in the immediate kind of run up then to Christmas you could see the effect of um, the new variant kind of coming in and, and people were more widely using antigen tests and ringing us with positive results so we were having to do an awful lot of PCR referrals in the, in the immediate run up and then shortly afterwards when we came back in the new year so so it was again it was kind of balancing all this kind of, you know, non-COVID care and then being confronted again, this new variant kind of presented us with a curveball and in, in having to kind of nearly clear the decks and, and focus then on on really ramping up kind of uh, booster vaccines, which our practice was involved in, um, whilst also acknowledging that, you know, this is the time of year that is naturally busy anyway. And, and people were ringing us with, you know, other things that they needed to be seen for. So, um, yeah, it was... It was tricky, um, but I think, you know, the booster program that we ran the practice went really well. And I think a lot of GPs kind of took it as a call to arms and rallied um, and really kind of were flexible. And, you know, obviously had the, their patients in terms of the, the patients that was demonstrated by them to allow us to be able to reorganize things, to run vaccine clinics. So and I really do think that made a big difference, you know, um, in the run up to Christmas. And there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. When it comes to the, the booster rollout, how much of an impact did that rollout actually have on the day-to-day at GP surgeries? It did take, um, you know, a significant amount of organising, albeit I suppose we had the template in place and that we had been involved in delivering boosters to our over 70s. And 
really, I suppose, where, where the change came about was that, you know, there was certainly a call put out. It was put out through our union, the IMO. A lot of GPs logged on to to a webinar, um, I think it was on a Tuesday night before, before Christmas. And, and really, it was kind of presented to us that this new variant to have a massive impact uh, upon our health service um, in terms of COVID and non-COVID care and that really we were looking at a lot of patients who possibly had waned immunity and, and there was a, you know the, the rationale was that we, we need to get these boosters in and we need to get them in to as many eligible people as possible and quickly so it really did involve you know a significant amount of organizing our practice nurses I think across the board have been absolutely amazing certainly in our practice but I'm sure the the you know was mirrored in other practices up and down the country they really kind of just took the reins and organized clinics with us and it really just involved in making sure that I suppose any routine stuff and by way I mean routine I mean like stuff like you know we would do driver's license medicals and maybe some insurance medicals and, 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 you know, other things where people were well, but they maybe wanted checkups such as bloods and other things. You know, we really had to kind of see what were the things that we could defer to allow us a clean run at this, you know, because you do really need a couple of hands on deck to be able to run the clinic seamlessly. You also need to make sure that, you know, you're not having patients waiting around or you can account for, you know, how many people you will need to have in the waiting room and stuff like that. So it did involve uh, rescheduling things uh, and making sure we had enough doctors and duty to be able to cover for the patients who, who obviously need to attend us for other reasons. So it certainly wasn't a case that we just did COVID vaccines or we shut the door to anything else. And then when it comes to the, the non-COVID side of things, I mean, obviously pre-pandemic, long waiting lists were, you know, were still an issue. That's nothing new, but it has made things worse. Are you seeing delayed diagnoses? For the most part, no. Um, we, In terms of, I suppose, the, the ultimate fear would be that people on one part would not present to their GP with, with symptoms of concern because they were afraid of contracting COVID or, you know, um, still some people were like I know you're busy I don't want to bother you I think there was less of that this time around I think people were more aware that you know um, general practice was open and the hospitals were open and and you weren't meant to put off getting urgent symptoms checked out you know like chest pain or or symptoms of stroke or symptoms you know in terms of anything that you were worried about I suppose really to put it to put it kind of broadly but uh, and in terms of our pathways to care, in terms of our suspicions about like, you know, um, I suppose new diagnoses of, of cancer, or, you know, accessing secondary care, the pathways such as breast check and, you know, prostate cancer screening services, you know, in our tertiary centres, uh, they were running quite well. I didn't I didn't notice any significant delay in those services. And generally, you know, a lot of our colleagues in, in the hospitals are fantastic. If you are worried about somebody, um, you know, you, you could always pick up the phone and, and ring. But, you know, there are other challenges, you know, you could see the knock on effect in terms of staffing shortages. Um, you know, unfortunately, there were colleagues and, and myself included where we received notices that palliative care services for especially were coming under strain and that they were going to struggle to take on new referrals from patients who were had new diagnoses in the community. So, you know, that was quite stark. Um, so that was around kind of the Christmas period. So you kind of see there. The effect of COVID when it spills over into secondary care in terms of staffing shortages, you know, not actually enough staff to operate a service. So, yeah, it, it does kind of illustrate that yeah, our system does struggle. Um, I suppose any health system would struggle, you know, in the context of COVID. But um, they were the particular instances where it, it was, you know, it, it was presenting difficulties to us. 
So it's the other area that I think definitely there was difficulties before COVID and I, I feel are still, you know, present challenges to, to managing, to GPs who are trying to manage patients in the community would be particularly mental health services and particularly adolescent and, and uh, you know, and teenage mental health services and then other services like physiotherapy in the community, dietitians. And I know, I mean, that's something that we would have talked about pre-pandemic that, you know, some of the, the mental health side of things was definitely coming through GPs and, and throughout the pandemic. I mean, it seemed like GPs were picking up the slack in a number of areas, not just in, in the COVID areas. I mean, general practice has been front and centre through the entire pandemic. Do you feel that you're an underappreciated part of the health service? We're maybe not underappreciated, but we're certainly, I would feel, the most accessible part of our health service. And uh, I think people really got an appreciation of that um, over the last 18 months to two years that, you know, we're accessible and, and our doors didn't close throughout the pandemic. And yeah, you're right. I think in terms of picking up the slack, I mean, we were all aware of how how hard our colleagues in, in other areas have been working. But I suppose you are seeing a spillover effect in terms of people who've been waiting on outpatient appointments or awaiting specialist input and they can't get in. And if they can't get in there and they have chronic unmet health needs, they are going to access their GP. So it, it is in terms of the, the caseload or the mix of stuff that we're, that we're managing, I suppose. Um, but, you know, we are taking on a kind of more long term management to people who really need to be plugged into specialist care or, see, you know, or see um, a specialist earlier. Um, and that's obviously because of delays that were, like you said, existed long before COVID, but, you know, have been augmented now by the, by the effect of COVID. So GPs struggle to get um, people to cover them if they're going on holidays that existed before COVID. But you would certainly say that it's something that needs to be prioritised now. You know, like everybody who works in our health service needs a break and GPs are no different there. So I think as a workforce, we have definitely shown our adaptability and our commitment really you know because I suppose these are our patients and, and we wanted to we wanted to to take care of them. And I mean when you look forward to the next year I know year in a pandemic is a very long time so this is probably a hard question but what do you think will be the biggest challenge for GPs? I think the biggest challenge would be uh, I suppose being adaptable to anything I suppose that comes our way but we've shown that already so you know I suppose we don't know what's in store we're hopeful obviously in terms of what lies ahead in terms of the the virus itself but I mean it, it has given us curveballs before and it may do in the future it's looking at the workforce that I think is probably one of the biggest challenges in general practice anyway and it is going to be even post-pandemic uh, the amount of GPs that are retiring. So in terms of bridging that gap between those who are retiring and those who are coming in, um, we need to be able to attract people into general practice. We need to look at, I suppose, the role of general practice nurses and and other people who can who can, can deliver care in the community. Um, I suppose definitely forge better relationships in terms of community care pathways. So I spoke about physiotherapy and occupational therapy. They work incredibly hard, but I, uh, we need to have, a, I suppose, a more robust network where, you know, if, if someone feels that they need physiotherapy or, or secondary services, that we're referring them an expectation that they're going to be seen in a timely fashion. 
Um, and I think there were certainly staff shortages at that level and, and that, that needs to be addressed. We, we need to retain people in our health service because if we lose people, it has a knock-on effect on all, on all areas. And I, people have increased health demands and we have an ageing population. Um, so definitely healthcare needs are, they're even different from when I you know, became a fully trained GP years ago. They're in a short space of time, you can see um, the changes that have been unfolding. And, and I think um, we'll have to make sure that we have enough GPs um, to be able to deliver those, uh, to deliver care to people with those needs. And that was Dr. Amy Morgan, a GP based in Drogheda. Now, you likely spotted headlines over Christmas right as Omicron was starting to impact that the National Ambulance Service entered what's known as Level 3 due to the impact of COVID, both on patients and the service's staffing levels. I spoke to Brendan Flynn, who's a paramedic supervisor based in Dublin, and he's also a union representative with the National Ambulance Representative Association, which is part of the PNA. I asked him what Level 3 actually means for him and his colleagues on the ground. Well, what it means is that uh, demand has has outpaced uh, the resources that are available. And it means that plan seat levels are probably 10 to 15 percent below uh, what you would like them to be. And resourcing is probably 10 to 15 percent below the, uh, the demand that the ambulance service can meet. And it's meant that we've, uh, we've had to seek support from external uh, ambulance service providers, such as the Red Cross, the John's Ambulance, the Army and other voluntary organisations in an attempt to meet that demand. What it means for staff on the on the ground is, well, staff are working 12-hour shifts on many occasions without uh, breaks, times to stop and eat. Like There's no structured meal breaks built into the system. They frequently get calls near the end of their shift, which often leads to overruns of two, three, four hours. The ambulance service is not the sort of job where you can just tune out and say, after 11 and a half hours, I'm not doing that, I'm going home. Uh, the calls still have to be responded to, and they are. Uh, the problems within the within the ambulance service, it's it's actually a systems-wide issue, it's a HSE issue, uh, and it comes down to historic under-resourcing uh, over the years. And it's been highlighted in numerous reviews of the health service and indeed of the ambulance service. We did, we've had a number of reports, I suppose more recently, the capacity review in 2015, which recommended uh, significant improvements in staffing levels And we have had some improvements, but nowhere near what is required to meet an ever-growing demand. That's not just an Irish problem, it's an international problem. I mean, obviously it's been very difficult for staff on the ground who've been working. What has the patient experience been like? So, you know, if somebody called 999 or 112 and, you know, it wasn't a sort of a critical situation, could they expect quite significant delays? They can expect some delays, but as I say, the ambulance service is doing its best with the resources at its disposal. The control room uh, triages the calls and they try to allocate uh, the, the resource to the most needy patients. Uh, the, health, the health service crisis, it's, it, we, we've had historic uh, problems with beds, lack of beds within the system. Uh, and what that means is that when an ambulance arrives in the ED uh, with a patient, they can experience delays in, in handing over that patient. And that means that the available resources to go to other patients in the community who require uh, assistance, the, the, the potential for delays there. And what you're, what you're seeing is we, we also have uh, other problems that aren't in the control of the ambulance service. We have uh, a lack of uh, GPs in the, in the system. And sometimes when people ring for a GP, the GP is telling them he can't see them that day and he's offering them an appointment three or four days uh, further down the road. 
the patient feels that their their particular condition is is acute. They feel that what what else do I do? So they ring one one two or nine nine nine, and they know that even though they might have to go in and wait for a number of hours in the ED department, that ultimately they're going to see a doctor or a nurse who's going to uh, alleviate their fears or put their mind at, at ease. We've also seen uh, our intermediate care service who normally would move patients out of of uh, hospital wards into other care facilities, whether it be nursing homes or back home. That service needs significant resourcing as well so that those patients can be moved in a more timely manner to make beds available for the ED department to move them on through the system. And depending on their conditions, some patients might not be brought straight to the nearest emergency department. So people might have heard of a PCI centre for people experiencing a heart attack, for example. How does that change things for ambulance crews? Uh, what we've seen is the introduction of uh, stroke units, PCI centres, trauma bypass. We've seen the closure of some local ED units. And these have placed extra demands on the ambulance service. It means that ambulance are now travelling longer distances with their patients. But what it does also mean is that the patients are getting to the best facility to treat their particular condition. And what that means is that the ambulance service, if it's to continue to meet the growing demand, it needs more resources. I suppose a good example would be uh, in the past, if you were uh, if you had a, a heart problem in Castle Blaney, you were probably taken to the local ED and the turnaround time was probably 40 minutes to an hour. What you're seeing now is that the ambulance service will go out to that call in Castle Blaney. The ambulance service will uh, use the diagnostic tools available to it and uh, they will make a decision. And assuming the patient meets the criteria, they may need to be transferred to a PCI centre. What that means now is that ambulance in Castle Blaney is now having to travel to Dublin to the Matter Hospital to get that patient the treatment that he or she requires. But what it means for the ambulance service is that that ambulance is now unavailable for two to three hours, probably three hours uh, at least. And that if another incident comes in in that Castle Daney area, that the ambulance is now traveling from possibly Monaghan or Navan or some other uh, location. But what it means is that the response time to that incident in Castle Daney is compromised. Uh, and that can only be alleviated by more resources and more ambulances within the system to allow the ambulance service to continue to uh, to improve the care that it's giving uh, to the public. In COVID, we, the, another initiative was that initially what the ambulance service and continues to do is that patients uh, are being assessed in their homes and the ambulance service was now in the position where uh, if having assessed their clinical need or their clinical condition, that the ambulance service was able to make a decision to leave that patient in their home that, that, that maybe they were able to give some minor treatment, leave that patient at home, whereas in the past, practically all patients were transported to hospital. So you, start, you are starting to see initiatives where, where the system or the ambulance service and the wider health service are looking at alternatives to, uh, to treatment in A&E departments. That was paramedic supervisor Brendan Flynn. And next up is a person Brendan and his colleagues might hand over patients to, and that's Dr. Fergal Hickey. He's a consultant in emergency medicine at Sligo University Hospital. We frequently heard that emergency departments are now as busy as they ever were, and that COVID is adding extra pressure and complications to the day-to-day work for doctors and nurses. I asked Fergal what level of admissions they're seeing right now. Well, what we're seeing is that the numbers attending emergency departments have returned to their pre-pandemic levels, and in some cases are greater than their pre-pandemic levels. 
and many of the things which shall we say would be regarded as normal for attempts at emergency departments have returned there was a period of perhaps about eight weeks after at the beginning of the first lockdown where most emergency departments if not all emergency departments around the country uh, had very very few patients and that was because people were scared to come to hospital and it meant that people were presenting late with conditions which did need treatment and certainly often needed time critical treatment so we're currently back to the numbers we would have seen there was some slight reduction in december which probably parallels the rise in omicron in other words that people got a little bit more scared again didn't do the things that they would normally do didn't get injured in the ways that they would normally have got injured but at the moment you know we're, we're pretty much back to the normal level of throughput through an emergency department and that includes both covid cases and non-covid cases what about the trolley situation what's that like now well, it's bad and it has been bad. Unfortunately, the first recorded case of a patient being on trolley goes back to 1998 and it's just got progressively worse since. But as of yesterday, I mean, the, the latest figures produced by the IMO were that there were 440 people on trolleys, of which the overwhelming majority, 346, were on trolleys in emergency departments. And most emergency departments are very cramped for space. They're full of patients, they're full of vulnerable patients. So this is you know, a very significant risk. And if you look at the figure, for example, for 2021, there was 70,275 people on trolleys. And in December alone, there were 7,493 patients on trolleys, including 173 children. So we have an enormous trolley problem, which is as a result of essentially a shortage of bed capacity. Um, we hear a lot of discussion about so-called incidental cases of COVID being admitted to hospital. So people who have COVID but went to hospital for some other health issue and, and then tested positive when they got there. So they may not necessarily be sick with COVID, but they still have an impact, right? Indeed. Uh, so all emergency departments changed the way that they dealt with patients with the onset of COVID. So what we did was created two streams. What was often referred to as a red stream, which is was a patient who was thought to potentially have COVID, either because they were known to have COVID and were, were deteriorating, or they had symptoms or were ill suggestive of COVID. So they were put through the red pathway in the department. And we had a parallel pathway, then a green pathway for those that didn't appear to have COVID. So that was the routine, normal stuff that attends emergency departments, the people with the broken wrists, you know, the lacerations, the, you know, the ankle fractures, all that type of uh, caseload was put through a green pathway. Now, in the case of those that went through the red pathway, they were isolated, they were kept apart from one another and, and precautions were taken by clinical staff dealing with them to make sure that staff didn't get infected or other patients didn't get infected. The difficulty arises if you get a patient who turns out to have COVID goes through the green stream because they will be potentially exposed to far more patients they'll be they'll be exposed to clinical staff who although will be taking precautions will not be taking the same level of ppe as they would if they were dealing with a known or suspected covid case so what that means is that when somebody is ultimately diagnosed as having covid even if that's not the reason that they attended it has an impact on the other patients that they may have encountered it has an impact on, on, you know, if they're admitted to a multi-bed ward, it has impacts for the other patients in that ward, and it's got implications for staff, some of whom may be deemed to be close contacts. 
And in terms of the vaccine rollout and also the emergence of the Omicron variant, how have those two things changed the manner in which people are presenting with COVID? Well, if we had Omicron and no vaccination, we would have huge numbers of deaths. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I think everybody has seen the fact that the number of ICU admissions hasn't skyrocketed in the way that people were concerned it would. And that's because of two factors. One is that there's a greater number of people who are protected by virtue of vaccination. That's crucially important. But the second is Omicron appears to be less likely to result in severe disease, although is much more transmissible. So as of this morning, we have 910 patients in hospital with COVID, of whom 93 are in ICU. So as a proportion, you know, that's that's roughly 10% of those that are admitted are in ICU. And we see lots of patients with COVID who we don't deem require admission and we send them home. So it, what, what I suppose it means in practice is that the elderly population are much, much better protected than they would have been. And they were the majority of the deaths in the first wave. Those with underlying health conditions are better protected uh, now as a result of vaccination. And they contributed significantly to the deaths in, in the early waves. And we have a large number of people who are vaccinated. And even though they may get the Omicron variant of COVID, don't get a significant illness. And in fact, may be asymptomatic and that may give rise to the issue we were discussing a minute ago, where they turn up with something else and they turn out in retrospect to have COVID as well. And for the patients who turn up with COVID, who are sick with COVID, have the actual symptoms changed or is it primarily respiratory distress? It's essentially a respiratory condition. And, you know, we, we see people with COVID who we send home because although they may have, you know, respiratory symptoms, they're not hypoxic. In other words, that their oxygen levels uh, aren't low, lower than they should be, and they don't need respiratory support. So people may, might assume that if you come to hospital and you have COVID, you'll be admitted. That isn't the case. Uh, we only admit a percentage of those with COVID because only a percentage of those need admission for respiratory support, either oxygen or other forms of respiratory support. And how much have staff shortages ramped up recently? I'm wondering how the functioning of the hospital overall, so beyond the emergency department, is impacted. Well, it's everywhere. The staff, so the staff issue affects any staff. Either the staff get COVID or are exposed and become close contacts of COVID, either through their family circumstances, either they get it through the school, they get it through social interaction, or in the case of when they go to work, they get it from exposure at work. So the, the fact that this is so transmissible and multiple times as transmissible as Delta, which in turn was many times more transmissible than the earlier variants, means that it is very easy to catch it. And what that means is that staff are either suffering from COVID, and certainly our emergency department has lost a significant number of medical and nursing staff to having COVID, or they're close contacts of people who have COVID and therefore are obliged to self-isolate. And what that means is that there are fewer staff in both emergency departments and around the hospital in general. It's harder to redeploy people to, you know, from one area to another because everywhere is short staffed. And it means that the throughput of patients is slowed down and there are more opportunities for care not to be delivered in the way that it should or would normally be delivered. And we are heading into 
yet another pandemic year in Ireland. I mean, is there any level of optimism among staff and emergency departments about what lies ahead now? So morale has been very seriously sapped by the prolonged, you know, the fact that this has gone on for so long. I mean, the first rec- the case, as you know, was recorded in Ireland at the end of February 2020. So we're almost into the third year of it. Uh, I think that has been very sapping for people. Complicating it was the massive cyber attack on the HSE, which meant that our capacity to do normal things, that happened in, in middle of May, our capacity to do normal things was very seriously impaired and is in fact still impaired. But notwithstanding all of that and the poor morale and the fact that people are sick and tired of the whole thing, the reality is that people see the benefit of vaccination and people also see that Omicron doesn't appear to be, for most people at least, doesn't appear to be as nasty a disease as the Delta variant. So I think there is hope that, you know, things will return to normal. They're not going to return immediately. And I don't see the restrictions being lifted in one fell swoop. And I also see that we will be potentially using masks for a long time to come. But it's really important that the opportunity is taken to learn lessons from this pandemic so that, I mean, there is there is a worrying likelihood of a different or a new pandemic in the not too distant future. I mean, the, the, the last major pandemic was in 1957, which was polio which had a significant impact, but didn't kill huge numbers of people. Before that, it was 1918, which people will know as Spanish influenza. Um, But the likelihood is that we will have more pandemics. That's the prediction of experts. And we'll have more pandemics of conditions which we haven't previously been exposed to. And that was the issue with this particular type of coronavirus. But unless we learn and actually make sure that we're adequately provided for the bed capacity that is required to run day-to-day healthcare services, then it's difficult to see how we'd be in a position to manage a pandemic. Now, having said all of that, the reality is that medical care during the pandemic in Ireland has been higher of a higher standard than people perhaps might expect or understand. Our death rate from COVID is one of the lowest in the world, which I think is, is a tribute to the people involved in delivering that care, even though they were delivering it in very difficult circumstances. And that was emergency medicine consultant, Dr. Fergal Hickey. Now, finally, a voice many will be familiar with since the start of the pandemic. Dr. Catherine Motherway is the head of the intensive care unit at University Hospital Limerick, and she's seen firsthand throughout the pandemic just how serious an illness COVID is. This wave has been felt differently in hospitals. So I asked her how the situation compares to last year. Obviously, we're still very busy. But if you look at the graphs that you see in that daily HSE update that they give every day, they produce a graph in one of the in one of the slides where you see the peak number of cases in ICU at any one time. And we've hit nothing like the peak, thankfully, that we hit last January. Equally, thankfully, um, while we still have a very significant number of our ICU um, bed population occupied by people with COVID infection and disease, it's not as bad as it was last year. I mean, last year, COVID-19 patients from March to October of, uh, for the entire pandemic had occupied about a quarter of our ICU bed days. But that went up to over half of our ICU bed days during the peak surge periods in January and February of 2021. So at the moment, we're running at about 25 to 30% of our beds are being occupied by people with COVID-19. And um, they're still a sick bunch of patients. We have more beds 
open than we did at the very beginning of the pandemic. We still need to continue to open more beds. So we're still under pressure and we're always under pressure in the winter. We've been under pressure in the winter, every winter in intensive care in Ireland since I started working and a significant number of years ago. So there's always been bed pressure and there's always been pressure from what we call unscheduled care, which has frequently interfered with um, scheduled activity. But during the peak surges, we have decreased pressure on our ICUs by either deferring or transferring scheduled care to the private hospitals. That has helped somewhat, though we would be very keen, those of us who work in ICU, to ensure that scheduled care, which is very important, continues. So at the moment, we're still under pressure. It's not as bad as it was last January and February, largely because we're now dealing with a vaccinated population who are hoping to see less really sick people come in. And generally, the younger patients that we're seeing in the ICUs are unvaccinated for whatever reason. Those people who are vaccinated are patients who are at high risk anyway, who are on very strong drugs that interfere with their immune system for some diseases or who may have um, leukemias, lymphomas, or who may be transplant recipients and are immunosuppressed for that reason. And I mean, do you expect that this current wave will plateau and then fall or could we still see a rise in ICU admissions as we go forward? Well, normally the ICU, you know, the numbers have been followed usually a week later, 10 days later by the hospital admissions. And then another four or five, six days, you see the ICU numbers um, follow. So generally, if you get really sick from COVID, you get your COVID, you end up coming to hospital maybe a week into your disease, sometimes earlier. And then if you end up coming to ICU, it's usually three or four more days before you come to the intensive care unit. So the numbers lag and, um, and that's always been the case. So I think it's a little bit early to say, but if you look at Denmark, which would be similar to us in terms of population and their vaccination rates, their numbers in ICU were beginning to fall now and they were ahead of us. So presuming, and this is a big presumption, presuming that we're going to follow them and that like them, um, we all our cases are Omicron, one would hope that the numbers would fall in the coming weeks. But I'd say it'll take another, it'll take maybe another two weeks to work that out, essentially, because it's only now we notice the case numbers, you know, those daily case numbers that are quite frightening when you look at them in their own, have started to go down. So I'd expect hospital admissions to continue somewhat after that. And ICU admissions to continue somewhat after that. And then we'll work out what's going to happen. So because we're about two weeks behind them, I gather, um, um, one would hope that we're going to follow their example, largely because like them, we are a highly vaccinated population. And you were talking about the, the types of patients that you're seeing in ICUs. I'm wondering, are they presenting with the same types of issues? Are they as sick as they were last year? Yes. There, when you get sick from whatever variant we're seeing in the ICUs, and that's the one thing. The other, the other thing that I can't tell you at this moment in time, what variant of COVID my ICU patients have, because we haven't been um, subtyping them. Now they're starting that, um, but only in the last. Um, I saw a letter about that last week, but we hadn't been throughout this, you know, throughout the waves. So the first wave was the original variety. The second wave was the alpha. The other wave was delta. We hadn't been specifically looking at whether a patient had alpha or delta or whatever in ICU. We just knew they had COVID and they were sick. And certainly it was my impression that delta made people more sick. But currently the patients who are coming into us 
And I would say 90% of patients in IC are in there because of COVID disease. We have some patients who come in, and I've seen four or five over the course of the last year myself personally, who come in with another problem that requires intensive care, who happen to have COVID. But I would say 90% of the people in ICUs are there. That's a that's a, my estimate now. That's a health warning. 90, 95% are in there because they have COVID. And they come in with respiratory failure, with um, a viral pneumonitis, and um, have low oxygen levels. If this virus evolves and becomes less pathogenic, I would expect it then to behave somewhat like other viral illnesses, like the flu, where sometimes the flu will cause somebody with a bad chest for the chest to get worse. So the flu will worsen their original disease. Thus far, the COVID has been making people have significant COVID pneumonitis, inflammation of the lung caused by the COVID virus itself. But eventually we may see it causing people with underlying health conditions for that health condition to get worse, somewhat like the flu had been, or the flu sometimes make people prone to pneumonia and stuff like that. So eventually, um, if this follows what flu did, our flu does, is it will um, just become another cause of respiratory illness in the winter that will drive um, our respiratory infections, which we always have. But for the moment, the patients we're still seeing have still got low oxygen levels and COVID disease, and a high number of them are requiring um, ventilation. But I don't know how many of the patients in ICU at this moment in time of Omicron versus Delta, because I'd say there's a bit of both still around. And when you look back at, at the last 12 months, Catherine, what would you say have been the biggest learnings for you and your colleagues? Well, in, in terms of treating COVID, I, I think pretty early on, there's quite a lot of, you know, putting people on their tummy is particularly useful. And we've been doing that almost since the very beginning, trying to avoid invasive ventilation if possible, we've been doing. The use of steroids obviously has happened um, after the, the, those last things. So we're doing all of that at the moment. And then, you know, there are other agents that we are using when people present and are sick based on research. So we've actually implemented most of that. We've been doing all of that. I mean, the biggest thing with COVID was to actually see what vaccination does to it. And if you look at... Um, there's 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 an ECD site which I'd recommend to you. If you look at the figures on the ECD site for Ireland, and if you look at our case count, and if you look at our deaths. So originally in the beginning there was obviously a rise in our deaths so with a rise in our case counts, and again in February and January of last year there was a big rise in deaths in accordance with case counts. But now, despite the increase in case counts, the line for the deaths, which all deaths from any disease are to be regretted is straight. There is absolutely, it's 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 become less related to the case counts. So we have with vaccination and potentially the variant um, really, really reduced the severity of the disease in terms of its outcome on, an, on, an, on, an, on the individual. And if you if you then look at um, countries in Europe that are less vaccinated, and I looked at Bulgaria when I, I was doing a talk, and for every surge in infection, you see a surge in deaths. So I think the biggest thing we've learned is that the vaccinations work. They work by preventing severe illness and deaths. They didn't work by stopping transmission, which was originally hoped for, but they work. And they have dramatically, dramatically decreased the percentage of people that are requiring to come into hospital with disease and the, and the percentage of people who are coming into ICU with disease. And once you get a viral pneumonitis of any description, it's quite a difficult thing to treat. And there is a significant morbidity, which means people have effects afterwards and mortality. 
And um, effectively, you know, a, a number of our patients who do require and are sick enough to come to us will actually not survive their illness. And what we've been trying to do for the last year is to try and ventilate people effectively without damaging their lungs any further and to try and prevent secondary infection, which is what we've been doing in ICU for years with viral pneumonitis. I mean, for this episode, we've been hearing from healthcare workers across the system. And there's obviously, while it is better than last year, still significant pressure on the system. I wonder if you have a message for people who are listening. uh, What can they do to help ease that burden? Get vaccinated if they haven't done so. If they're due their booster, go and get their booster. If they have a cold or a minor respiratory illness, don't dismiss it. Assume it's COVID. Do your antigen test or get a PCR and isolate. And that way you won't continue to transmit the disease because Omicron won't be the last variant of this thing we see, essentially. So if there is widespread transmission, there may be another variant, which we you know, would prefer not to think about because we're all hoping that we're coming out to the other end of this thing. So, I mean, getting vaccinated and continuing to obey the public health guidelines such as they are is the key to this thing. Just get vaccinated, get your booster if you're offered it. If you're high risk, obviously take more care and be careful of the masks that you use. I would suggest that most high risk people should use FFP2 masks if they can and when they're out and about. And for those of us who visit, and we all have vulnerable relatives, I mean, all of us do. And when I visit one house where I have a vulnerable relative, I always wear FFP2 masks. But that said, we just need to try and protect our vulnerable and protect ourselves. And vaccination has been a really, really, really good tool. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer and a particular thanks to Amy, Brendan, Fergal and Catherine for joining me. This episode is brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.